What's up, everybody? Welcome to another installment of Nuclear Barbarians podcast. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with the one and only Dr. Chris Kiefer. What is up, young man? Hey, Emmett. It's, it's good to be back. I have a non-COVID uh, cold, so my voice is going to sound funny, and I may have to take a coughing break. I'll try and do it away from the microphone. Yeah, it's all right. I'm happy you could make the time because things are popping off north of where I am, which is close to where you are in Canada. You just gave some blistering testimony on the need for nuclear energy in Canada. I think it was pretty well received as well, from what I could tell. But I don't know a lot about Canadian politics, and I don't know what it means that you did that, and I don't know what happens next. So I decided to haul you onto my Zoom meeting so that you could explain all of that to me in public. So let's start with that. How did this happen? What does it mean? What type of testimony was this? Just give me the rundown. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's good to provide a bit of context. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I got started with this crazy thing called nuclear advocacy. God, I think in 2019, I organized the Canada's first stand-up in one of the main town squares in, uh, in Toronto, our biggest city. And we had, you know, five or six people and a fold-out table. I've laid out some horrible graphic design, a couple pamphlets and some homemade posters. I and mean, we just talked to whoever would, would walk by and, you know, there's a lot of kind of characters as you have downtown, a lot of like homeless people and, you know, a few schizophrenics and then just random commuters and things like that, you know, fun conversations. But, you know, if you just time warp to three years later, things have, things have really heated up. I mean, we're in the midst of, and having been involved in this in just for just three years, it's it's extraordinary the way the kind of facts on the ground have changed. And and of course, it's not it's not climate change that's that's driving this. It's uh, you know global energy crisis and the uh, geopolitical ramifications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But you know, as we're seeing in Europe with uh, huge turnarounds uh, in the UK and France, even Belgium partially reversing its uh, nuclear phaseouts, there's similar similar reverberations happening in Canada, and because. You know, we are this fascinating tier one nuclear nation that, you know, we're kind of the OG in terms of energy security, particularly in nuclear, because we circumvented, you know, the U.S. monopoly on nuclear energy by just saying, hey, fuck it, we're not going to bother with enriching uranium, we're going to follow our own design, not be dependent on you for our fuel, and develop this wonderful candy reactor that's served us so well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a real whirlwind two weeks ago. I was on Parliament Hill um, speaking with both caucuses of the, the two main parties, the Liberal and the Conservative Party. And on budget day, actually meeting with uh, several cabinet ministers of the governing party. You know, I had embarrassed the uh, the government's uh, Minister of uh, uh, Environment and Climate Change at COP26. I think maybe we talked about that in the past. But I was expecting maybe that that would impact um, my ability to speak with the governing party. But you know, there's there's real broad-based support for nuclear energy here in Canada across the political spectrum, except for, unfortunately, our kind of left-wing social democratic party. But we'll maybe get into that when I get a chance yeah. to describe this testimony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you just hit the ground running, it sounds like. And now it looks like, I mean, it's hard to undersell what the geopolitics of this moment have done to rehabilitate nuclear in the public eye. I mean, it, it, we're talking about like a half century of denigration yeah. of yeah. an energy technology. It's really crazy. So let's talk about this testimony a little bit. Like who were you testifying in front of and what role do they play? 
Yeah, so because of, I guess, impressing a few of the members of the Conservative Caucus, one of those MPs asked me to put me on the list of witnesses for the House of Commons Standing Committee on Natural Resources. And this particular committee is on creating a just and equitable and a Canadian energy transformation. I mean, long and short of it, it's, it's, a, it's a committee on the just transition. And so basically, yeah, there's parliamentary committees that are struck to examine a number of different issues. There, there's a natural resources committee and you know, environment committee, all the different portfolios of government. And they're made up of you know, all, all of the official parties. You know, they're usually chaired by the governing party and they make recommendations towards making laws in this country. So it's quite a formal affair. I, I flew up to the Capitol. You know, it's it's in the West Block, which is, you know, I, I'm trying to make analogies to the US, but you know, it's kind of like Capitol Hill, very, you know, formal, formal setting. You know, you're all, you know, mic'd up and sitting in a great big uh, circle with probably 30 other people in the room and a chair. And, you know, there's a formal etiquette you're supposed to go through. And yeah, I mean, so so this this presentation was on, I, you know, we're talking about the just transition. And, you know, Emmett, like you, I, I made the choice a long time ago to not kiss the ring, shall we say, of renewables in our nuclear advocacy. Yeah. And, you know, by not walling myself off and, and, and not self-censoring myself, you know, it really allowed me to, to, I think, come to a more fulsome understanding of the stark energy choices in front of us. You know, Canada talks a big game about climate change. Um, but has a very confused set of policies dabbling in, you know, the so-called hydrogen economy, you know, incentivizing electrical vehicles without really any plan as to how to charge them, you know, plans for carbon capture and storage. But really the, the thing that's missing, you know, if they're sincere about a net zero plan is, is, you know, the fundamental challenge of replacing fossil fuel power generation with carbon-free power generation. And, you know, as you're saying, we've been living in, in the kind of Amory Lovins years, the last 50 years, we haven't built shit. You know, our, our grids, our grids haven't grown. And so none of the policymakers, literally none of the policymakers alive have any experience with, you know, how to do that. And so that's kind of what I bring to the table is guys, we have to build a lot of stuff and we have to decide which technologies we choose because it's not all kumbaya, you know, well, it's all low carbon. It's all good. You know, what about bothism? There are stark implications, particularly for Canadian workers and for the working class and for the overall economy in general, for which way we go on this. You know, and, and if, we, if we go the wind and solar route, we're talking about foreign supply chains in authoritarian countries. We're talking about generating massive trade deficits, you know, importing, you know, it's almost exclusively overseas, this whole, this whole supply chain. So importing weather harvesters and becoming a nation of low-skilled workers, almost all non-unionized slapping up these, you know, foreign made wind harvest, wind and solar, you know, machines. And, you know, that just stands in stark contrast to um, what nuclear energy has done and can do, no pun intended, for Canada. You know, again, we, we have this 96% plus made in Canada supply chain, mm -hmm. from the uranium mines to the fuel fabrication to the heavy industry to operation and maintenance, to the spent fuel handling. You know, we have, we have the richest ore grades of uranium in the world. Like literally from, I don't want to say, you know, from cradle to grave, we, we do it all and we capture all of the value of any investment we make. And if we're sincere again about doubling our grid to meet our electrification goals, this is hundreds of billions of dollars of investment. And, you know, we know that nuclear has the, the greatest economic multiplier effect. You know, when you invest a dollar in Canada in Candu Nuclear, you get between a buck thirty and a buck forty back in GDP growth. Mm -hmm. And because because the operate expenses of nuclear are cheap uranium and high skilled labor, that money is largely wages. It's six figure wages for skilled tradespeople, STEM professionals, 
I mean, Tracy Primo, my, my indigenous friend who rose from the shop floor to basically running all four of the reactors at Bruce Power, she says there's a job for everyone in nuclear. So, so you know, again, you have the stark contrast between non-unionized, low-skilled, low-wage jobs versus capturing all of the value of those investments, mostly in the pockets of the Canadian working class, for them to spend in their communities and generate secondary economic benefits, which is why you invest a buck, you get a buck 40 back. No one is talking about this, though, Emmett. And so I think that's why my testimony was, you know, kind of thunderous. And it was funny, I was invited by, you know, a conservative member of parliament. I delivered a speech, which was, you know, basically the conclusion pro-labor <laughs> incredibly pro-labor you know i was basically saying you know wind and solar are workerless facilities you know a just transition will not be given to workers you know and just working conditions good working conditions you know i quoted frederick Douglass for god's sakes you know i said mm -hmm. power concedes nothing without demand right mm -hmm. working people weren't gifted high wages and good working conditions right high skilled labor that's hard to replace with scab labor that has the right and ability to strike is what earns itself a just transition, right? Yeah. And, so, and so I said, listen, like a just transition is not gonna be gifted. Like Canadian workers will be the heroes of their own just transition, but only if policymakers make the right technological choices and set the right industrial policy. So that was my message and, and it was interesting how it was received. How was it received? Tell me about that. Well, again, it's it's bizarre, right? I deliver this resounding pro-labor message. I'm getting, you know, slaps on the back from the conservatives um, and the liberals. And then I have, you know, the the NDP, which is, you know, they, they, they were an amazing party back in the day. They were the Canadian Commonwealth Federation, an avowedly socialist party that called for the nationalization of big chunks of the economy. They actually got us Medicare, which is our universal public health system. They won us most of the social programs. Like the reason that we don't, you know, have a stripped down American welfare state, but more of a European one is largely because of this party when it's when it's formed, when it's, you know, held up minority liberal governments, we've won those big sort of uh, concessions. But as we've seen with the left around the world, you know, as Thomas Piketty says, we now have this phenomenon of the Brahmin left, where, you know, the left has, um, you know, moved from the workplace given up on organizing workers, moved away from the factories as we've deindustrialized, you know, seen students, I guess, as the new sort of revolutionary vanguard, gone to the academy, the ivory tower, you know, lost its engineering discipline, lost touch with working people. And, and so you have a left, which is largely the educated elite, that's who supports the left parties, and the working class has gone and votes along with the 1% for the right wing parties. So this, this Brahmin left is, is just really, you know, while in their DNA, in their party's DNA is, you know, they were the parties of labor. Mm -hmm. um, they seem to have no real concern for this, this future that I'm painting. And, and so the NDP representative, Charlie Angus, you know, just proceeded to ask some really bizarre questions and just not engage whatsoever with any of the subject matter relevant to workers in a just transition. This was a committee, again, set up particularly to examine the just transition. I did not receive a single labor-based question, despite my testimony being completely about that. It just went straight to the usual issues of, you know, waste and proliferation. And, you know, those, I enjoy answering those questions and the reasonable questions, but I mean, we weren't there to talk about that issue in particular. So it was an interesting experience for me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you say that because it's something that I've been doing a lot of thinking about too, is I've written this long piece on nuclear that'll be out next month and I'm working on another long piece on the grid. And I've been trying to figure out like how we got here. 
yeah. where we seem to be using these old expectations for who's on which side in a world that no longer even allows for some of those expectations to be valid, not just at the partisan level, but just at the way like certain things work. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the Democrats aren't really like the New Deal party anymore. <laughs> they, oh, no. I can't remember the last time they were. Like, and the Great Society was not really in a program, was not an elaboration necessarily on the New Deal. It was way weirder and had even more problems than the New Deal had. And the New Deal definitely had some problems. So I can only assume that that is very similar in Canada. I mean, for God's sakes, Amory Lovins consulted with Ontario Power. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, 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 I, I joke often that Ontario is the France of Canada. Obviously, we have Quebec, which is the French speaking province, but Ontario's power generation is very, very similar to France in that we're mostly nuclear with a bit of hydro. We had a, you know, already world class decarbonized grid when we phased coal off of the grid using nuclear energy. And then we built a whole bunch of wind and solar, gave out these lucrative private sector contracts, 20 year contracts, paying obscene amounts per kilowatt hour generated, you know, nuclear at the time was going for about seven cents per kilowatt hour. And we were paying a solar upwards of 49 cents. And if you were lucky enough to put it on your rooftop, 80 cents a kilowatt hour. Good God. Right. And, and, and these, these contracts locked those rates in for 20 years. Right. So we're still stuck paying them. And, you know, it, it became such a scandal that, you know, our majority liberal government was reduced to a non-official party status. They went from you know 100 and something seats down to six seats, mostly over this over this issue of skyrocketing energy prices. And you know nowadays, our government because because ratepayers will not put up with high, the high electricity prices that this Green Energy Act, this Amory Levin's plan gave us, our government subsidizes the ratepayers, subsidizes the cost of these contracts. We spend 3.2 billion dollars every single year to pay that green energy part of part of the the, the bills we, we we offload from the rate pair and the taxpayer pays for it instead and you know that's that's up there with what we pay for long-term care for for our seniors right it's something like you know the number eight or nine line on our budget so you know it's it's and it's a real wound to me because you know one of my great battles is to save the pickering nuclear generating station which is close to toronto where i live you know it employs 3000 people directly there's 7 7600 full time equivalent jobs in total you know related to the plants you know and economic spin-offs and uh you know rather than spending around 10 billion to refurbish it given another 40 years of life we've we probably end up spending around 40 billion dollars when all is said and done on these green energy contracts and again, wind and solar deliver very little in terms of decarbonization value here in Ontario. Wind produces radically out of phase with demand. And you know, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of like Germany. Our, our capacity factors on solar are sort of 10 to 15%. It was a ludicrous investment and it set us up very poorly for this Wait, challenge of electrification. You're telling me in snowy ass Canada that solar has a shitty capacity factor, Chris? Is that? Who would have thunk? Who would have thunk? <laughs> thunk? And, and honestly, I mean, it's just... It's, it's strange that like, you know, me as an emergency physician, podcaster, you know, obsessed with energy is the one bringing, I think, a very common sense and very obvious message. And, and again, I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about the intermittency problem, for instance, and the, you know, the renewable side, the, the mainstream environmentalist side have, you know, really spent an enormous amount of uh, intellectual capital fighting that argument. 
as as nonsensical as it is, right? The, the Mark C. Jacobsons, you know, the, the the army of energy modelers who you know find various ways to prove that it's it's doable. So the intermittency thing, it's I think it's it's you know a, an arrow in our quiver. But the just transition thing is just irrefutable. You know, seven of the ten large major wind turbine manufacturers are now Chinese. And the three European ones are rapidly offshoring um, their manufacturing to China. You know, the price of commodities is skyrocketing with this energy crisis. I think you were the one who brought it to my attention, but polysilicon prices jumped 300%. But also shipping costs are going through the roof as well. And margins are getting pretty tight on these renewable projects. And with the combination of rising commodity prices and, and shipping costs, they're looking less and less viable. But also the only way they can be viable is if, you know, if these companies take advantage of the agrarious environmental and labor standards, that kind of race to the bottom for low wages and, and basically no environmental standards that are available in places like China and Vietnam. So for, for the West, particularly in the context of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, you know, we've seen how, how weak Europe has been in Germany in particular to being able to stand up to to the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Imagine we carry on down this wind and solar based energy transition. You know, I think Biden's called for something like 40 or 45% solar energy on the US grid. What happens when China invades Taiwan? Mm -hmm. Right? You know, we'll be, you know, at, probably as bad or even worse than Germany, because at least Germany, you know, can still keep the lights on with its goddamn coal fleet, you know? Um, it's it's wild. It's wild. So no, no, I, I, I think this this just transition thing is is it's one of the most important, you know, analytical frames through which to to, to examine our, our, you know, net zero or clean energy future. Mm -hmm. But, you know, another thing you said struck me, which was just that, you know, nuclear is back on the table in a way it hasn't been in a long time. Well, that's because it's the only thermodynamically viable choice beyond fossil fuels. Right. Of course it is. And, and when the OPEC crisis hit and there was a fossil fuel shortage in the 70s, nuclear experience, the Renaissance, every time there's an energy crisis and fossil fuels become scarce or expensive, we start talking nuclear again because oh, it's fucking common sense. That's, that's not true in America. The OPEC crisis was the downfall of nuclear in America. OK, you went on coal, you went big on coal, but it's because you had a bunch of coal, right? Well, it's not even necessarily because we Good. actually did not have a lot of coal because we expected a lot of nuclear to come online. But the plant delays kept increasing because only Westinghouse and General Electric, General Electric could build it. Not a lot of them, they couldn't make enough compressor parts in time. So there was wow. a huge backlog. And the industry had, since the mid-60s, started to plateau for turbine efficiencies. So their thermal efficiency just started dropping and they had let go of their learn by doing approach where they would make something, take it to market. Once they took it to market, they would then do a small fix and build it bigger from there. In order to keep capitalizing on uh, increasing thermal efficiency to the point where they hit diminishing returns, they had to just say, build us something huge and then we'll see what happens. And that felt possible because they were getting new alloys out of the World War II experience through the Air Force. But those new allo alloys provided all sorts of other problems for them. To the point where the Atomic Energy Commission had to be like, you can't make nuclear reactors larger than like a thousand megawatts anymore because well, we, we just can't do it. Like it, it's too much of a pain in the ass because right. you lay out all this capital and then instead of driving down the cost for electricity because it's so efficient, it has an availability problem where the availability dropped from something like 90 something at the beginning of the 60s to like 80 something after that.
mm. because there were so many difficulties in keeping these new, whether it's coal or whatever online. So when the energy crisis hit, everybody was like, look, we're canceling stuff that isn't coming online because everybody's pissed at us because we've driven so much into everybody's rate base. And now we're so dependent on foreign oil because we are walking away from coal. And yeah. that structurally was the death of nuclear in America. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Like, so that was it. Like people, like once the energy crisis happened, that was the argument against nuclear, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is also why Amory Lovins and EF Schumacher, Schumacher was a, headed up like the coal industry in the UK for a while. And Lovins consulted with coal, com coal companies were very comfortable with coal and their ideas for the smallest, beautiful economy, because we've been doing it for like a hundred years. And so we were really good at decentralizing coal. We could build them in a modular way if we wanted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what they were worried about. They were worried about the centralization of power and they were worried about managerial overreach. And that was it. Like the whole backlash that happens in the 60s and 70s is against the hubris of engineers who basically thought that they should be in charge of running society and no one should say shit to them. I guess what I'm saying is if, if the U.S. didn't have uh, coal reserves, not, not necessarily plants that were about to come online, but coal reserves, there's no yeah, other choice. I mean, and just, and just look at France, right? I mean, you know. France is the example of what you're Right? They didn't have oil. They didn't have coal. They didn't have gas. And so nuclear was, was the only viable option. And, and yeah. it, that remains the case, I think, to this day. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's what's interesting now being in America when you start to see nuclear being put on the table. Mm -hmm. is that now people are just like, oh, maybe we kind of hobbled this a little bit too much. So now it's true that everybody, a lot of people in America are looking around being like, yeah, why weren't we doing this? You know what's, you know what's special about Canada, you know, and, and I've, I've been sort of shitting on nuclear across the West in general, but I've, I've sort of had a bit of a turnaround. My friend, Kyle of Calumets, I think really brought this to my attention because he's, he's, he's very bullish on, on Canada, Canadian nuclear. You know, he thinks Canada is going to play a major role in helping Europe achieve its energy security in the context of making a commitment in five years to get off of Russian energy imports. But you know, this whole thing with our Canada refurbishments where every 30 or 40 years, you have to put in some money, but you get another 40 years out of your nuclear plant. You know, that's, that's really geared up an incredible supply chain and active workforce that's intimately familiar with our, with our can-do technology. You know, and so what's seemed politically impossible, I think, is becoming an absolute necessity. And I think we're, we're ready to, to not only, you know, we're, we're building the West's first SMR in Darlington, you know, which is going to be a, have a first mover effect. And, you know, they're already planning on building a lot in Europe. TVA is talking about building some. Canada will be the first mover on that. But also, you know, we're really well positioned to build new CANDU. And, you know, call me crazy, but, you know, I think, I think that's a real possibility. And if you talked to me six months ago, I mean, I would have said I'm, you know, I'm delusionally fighting for that, but I'm actually feeling, I'm actually feeling like it's a possibility now. I mean, that's what's interesting to me about the TVA. It's Ontario power, right? That yeah, OPG. A, yeah, which is really interesting. I mean, that is sort of this rhyming with the plan of the New Deal, because FDR, when he was government of, governor of New York, was like, right. what's the deal with Ontario power? How come this goddamn backwater north of the border has so much cheaper electricity than we do? What's yeah. going on? I yeah. think these private utility guys are screwing me over. And uh, eventually he got his revenge with the TV when he laid it out. It was supposed to be a measuring stick, a yardstick, and a birch rod for the private utility industry. And now here we are. The Ontario Power and TVA are collaborating to be a first mover in SMRs. I mean, I, it's hard to be more exciting than that. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, getting, getting back to the testimony, it was, it was very interesting again, being challenged by the, the representative of the new democratic party or our left-wing party, you know, and just how illiterate this guy, you know, he, he came with some talking points. He skimmed the IPCC and, and the IPCC does talk about, you know, all of the energy sources and their drawbacks and benefits. And it mentions, you know, proliferation and waste management and other issues with nuclear. So he ran over those, but his big thing was, you know, that SMRs, you know, it's different than CANDUs and those reactors make plutonium and that could be separated to make weapons. And, you know, that, that BWR fuel, it's not like CANDU. It's, it's, we won't be able to store the waste somehow. And it's like, buddy, like CANDU is the exception, not the rule, right? Um, you know, almost the entire, you know, water moderated reactor fleet is, is, is runs on low enriched uranium. Like that's what Onkalo is for. Anyway, it was just, it was uh, it was an interesting experience. I think I was a bit politically naive because you know the first questions were sort of very genuine. You know, we've invited some expert witnesses in. We're going to try and learn from them. But then it turned into uh, some interesting sort of attempts at scoring points. You know, which culminated in you know I, I I talked about the waste and basically was you know talking about the the logistics, right? The mechanism for waste to get out of a repository and hurt people because I think you know people. It's similar. You know, I've, I've heard I've heard this, this strategy before when people talk about waste, ask them, like, what does it look like? How, how do you imagine it? What is it? Right. But similarly, when you ask people, like, how, how does it get out of a, a hole in the ground that's, you know, half a kilometer deep? You know, basically, water needs to percolate, get through all of the engineered barriers, dissolve, you know, mm-hmm. the ceramic coffee cup here and carry the radioisotopes through rock and, and move somewhere right to a water table to the surface. And the rock we're looking at, it takes a million years for that water to move a meter, right? So, you know, in one centimeter or even less than a centimeter, that's 10,000 years, right? You're, you're back to the, the level of radioactivity of the ore from which it came. And in a thousand years, you, none of your gammas are there anymore. Yep. And you have just alpha and beta emitters and you would literally need to pulverize that waste and eat it. So that's what I said. And, and this guy, you know, this Charlie Angus guy from the NDP started saying, you know, you're telling me I should go back to Northern Ontario and tell my constituents to eat nuclear waste and eat uranium. And it was just, it was, uh, you know, I shut him down pretty quick on that, but, but it was, it was entertaining. That's so funny, man. That's such fun. That's like pro wrestling style. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's next? Tell me like, what, where, where do you go from here? You know what, I think the safe pickering campaign is, is really growing feet because a lot of politicians are saying, okay, like, what can we concretely do? And I think there's a real opportunity now with, you know, the federal government, the provincial government to come together to partially finance the refurbishment and a, an, an op, you know, if OPG does not want to do the refurbishment, a partner like Bruce Power coming in um, and taking over the plant and, and running that refurbishment. You know, and it's just a massive amount of power that's about to come offline and we are not ready to deal with it, particularly with this whole thing of, you know, by 2035, you know, you're not supposed to, no one's supposed to be able to buy light duty internal combustion engines anymore, right? So there's this whole plan to, you know, 25% of Canada's emissions are transportation related, big, big distances between our towns and cities, huge country. And, you know, the plan is to electrify that, but there's no realistic plan, again, to develop the power generation to make that happen. So by 2030, we're expecting a, an eight gigawatt shortfall. And we're talking about taking 3,200 megawatts offline in, in 2025. It just doesn't make sense. So the conditions under which we made the decision not to refurbish Pickering, which were, you know, the fracking revolution, dirt cheap gas, that gas was cool, you know, it was a transition fuel, it was climate friendly, and that we were, you know, we were actually promised that we we're going to be building new nuclear at Darlington at that point, you know, that's, that's all changed. Gas has quadrupled, we're up to $8 per million BTU. 
And if, if the U.S. is going to do a kind of energy Marshall plan for Europe to help it get off of Russian oil and gas, I can't see gas prices, you know, settling back down again. And that's really going to factor into the economics of replacing 3,200 megawatts of nuclear with gas, which is what the IESO, our, our systems operator, says is going to happen. So again, it's not going to be climate concerns. It's going to be, you know, pragmatic economic issues that will drive it. But, you know, I think we went from, you know, the, the chances of saving Pickering being one in a million. Now we're probably at one in a hundred. And we're going to take that to, you know, one in 50, one in 25. And we're going to save the other thing. And, and I, you know, I'm feeling more and more optimistic about that. You know, we've Canadians for Nuclear Energy has prepared an absolutely bombshell, you know, high level policy report, which we're going to be dropping soon. And I think it's going to create a lot of chatter and a lot of ideas and, and pave the way, you know, for a concrete, a concrete pathway to that refurbishment. And we're going to build new nuclear and we're going to get that SMR built and we're going to kick some ass up here in Canada and hopefully, you know, get you inspired by looking north again. Yeah, hopefully and, those of us south of you uh, will we'll get a little bit of that uplift. I hope to see that happen. I, it's, it's very sad looking to the south with your obstructionist NRC and your, you know, billion dollars of, you know, annual operating budget of your anti-nuclear environmental NGOs. I, I, I'm, it's hard to be hopeful for you guys, but I know with folks, you know, the, the growing uh, herd of barbarians out there, nuclear <laughs> barbarians, and other activists that, uh, you know, we're going to win this uh, David and Goliath struggle, even in uh, the unfriendly territory of the United States. Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, you guys are the North Star for us. So we're hoping that, that you win and that this keeps rolling. And I think we'll end it on this triumphant and hopeful note. Chris, thank you so much for joining me again. This was a blast. All right, Emmett, anytime, brother. All right, everybody, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.